As you heard, we are <clears throat> starting a, a summer series. It's a brief series called Thinking Rightly. My initial thoughts was uh, during the summer, before we kick off the fall, and as I promised, we will start the, the Sermon on the Mount series. Um, initial thought was something lighthearted, something just fun, something I don't have to study too much. <laughs> um, but as you know, the past uh, several months and the past few years in America, as we celebrated just the Independence Day, America is blessed at the same time, broken deeply. The incidents of Charleston, um, Supreme Court decisions, same-sex marriage. Um, the televisions are full of a spirituality that is quite different from the biblical spirituality. So we're going to take a few weeks to learn to think rightly. And uh, let me make this very clear. My opinion doesn't matter here, and yours either. But how we look into the scripture and to, look, to, to think rightly requires a few things. One is openness, obviously, and, and surrender to the scripture. But also to think that the issues are simple, we become simplistic people. The some of the issues that I just named is very complex. But what do we hear? There are so many voices these days. I don't know about you, but it used to be news or newspaper articles. Now it's because of social media. And if you're on a Facebook, and there is all kinds of debate and chip shots going back and forth. And one of the uh, scholars, evangelical leaders, that whom I respect, said, ours is a generation that there is no critical balance. It's a polarization happens all the time. Either you're for this or you're very against it. Either you are... Um, Bible-banging, judgmental Christians, or anything goes, kesera, sera, grace and love wins and everything. To think rightly, we need to, first of all, to think about the complexity of this world, but to look into the scripture and to learn to apply in a very critical way, and which is not that easy. So I would admit to you that this is not a message that is full of airtight convictions at all. And this is how we understand the scripture says. But some of them have huge ramification. So let's start with the very first one, the very most important thing is about thinking rightly about God. 
Why is it so important to think rightly about God? Because if we don't think rightly about God, it will lead us to at least three things. Idolatry. Rather than one true God. In a moment, I'm going to read that quote from Adel Tozer. It's really, when you think about idolatry, back in the days, it was some kind of image that you bow down. In In our days, it's more conceptual things, wrong thoughts about God. Thinking wrongly is the beginning point of idolatry. Number two, if we don't think rightly about God, it will lead us to spiritual superficiality. So everything becomes puny little God, produces puny little lives of spiritual life. What else is there? I, I think it's so sad to think about American spirituality very much about seeking for our own happiness and contentment, especially living in Orange County, it could be the spiritual deadly sin for us. Bob and Grace is right. I agree, totally agree with you with them, because when sin uh, or our brokenness comes, and there is a pain and suffering, and all of a sudden. You can't really categorize things anymore. You cannot label things anymore. The world is uncontrollable. And then you begin to see true God in that. Number three, if we don't think rightly about God, it will lead us to pseudo-transformation rather than real transformation. After all, religion is all about that, isn't it? You do the right things on the surface, and you appear to be right in some sense, and cleaned up some sense, then you're a good Christian. And I'm talking about not just the people who are out there. I'm talking about within the church. What does it mean to seek real transformation? It starts with heart, not outside in. But what does God desire to see in our heart is the beginning point. If we create this this superficial God who wants us to be a little puffed in some sense, and then we're going to maintain behavior modification, Like a little kid who was forced to sit down. You will sit down. And then he's sitting down and looking at mom. Mommy, I'm sitting on the outside, but standing standing up inside of my heart. Could do that. Let me ask you a question. How do you think rightly about God? That presupposes there are some things that we could think wrongly. We are influenced by the wrong things about God. And what's the big deal? Listen to A.W. Tozer. 
Let us beware lest we in our pride accept the erroneous notion that idolatry consists only in keeping before visible objects of adoration, and that civilized peoples are there for free from it. The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are not that are unworthy of Him. It begins in the mind and may be present where no overt act of worship has taken place. The subtlety of this influence in our thoughts. What makes us think wrongly about God? There are external things to begin with. So, even if you look at Hollywood movies, the Hollywood movies are very man-made, limited, usually just a very uh, grandpa-looking, long um, beard. And not to mention mythical gods in Greek mythology. In the writings and culture. And there are also internal influences. On Father's Day, I mentioned that the blessing of a father on our children is so important because that has an impact, the lasting impact on our children. But as adult children, when you think about the impact, the negative impact is the wrong image of God. And there are brothers and sisters who happen to have this upbringing damaged by, by dysfunctionalism at home. Their view of God is a grace of God and loving God, a merciful God. It's hard to grasp, intimate God. But in that we have choice. We can think about God in terms of what the world feeds us, or we could look to Scripture as the supreme authority. Having said that, American culture, at least externally, what could be the central value? in American Western culture. I say pragmatism. Pragmatism is more philosophical word. Maybe the more close to us is consumerism. The question of value goes like this. The dryer, is it worth it? The question is, does it work? If it's work, it's very useful. It has a lot of worth. Your, your co-worker, is he, does he work? In a, way, in a sense, that does he, does he have effectiveness? Does she have effectiveness? So we naturally transferred into the thinking about God that way. We dare not to say, use the word useful. Maybe God who blesses. 
But in reality, if we dig up, what's really about is the adjective the Americans believe about God, typical Americans. If you're not careful, even church-going American is used for God. The ramification is huge. If you look to the scripture, there are many different adjectives, right? But let's choose just one constant theme of it. The centrality of God in the history of mankind, creation of the world, is a sovereign God. Let's compare those two things. A useful God, the ramification goes like this. The definition of a useful God is God fixes and makes my life better. If you're a believer, God is a part of my life. Very important part, sometimes neglected part, but is a part of my life. A typical prayer that we pray is, sounds really good. What do you want me to do, Lord? Sounds good, right? There is an unspoken sentence that is underneath. What do you want me to do so that I will do it? You go on, bless my life. It's one of those things the husband's in trouble and the wife is not happy and giving him cold shoulder. We, we tend to do that. Okay, what, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Can I have a peace after that, you know? Lord, uh, have, have I gone to church enough? Or oh, you want me to read Bible more? And my son is not doing well. You need to bless my son. My business is not going well. Of course, there is a spectrum of this mindset. The end is, bless me, God becomes an end, means to an end. I have good things that I want to get to, even destination. God is powerful. He could provide things. So he needs to be useful. This, on the spectrum, very end of spectrum, could be the prosperity gospel who have no shame, the preachers who pre preach health and wealth and a better life and better money, yacht, Houses, mansions, you name it. But in, in a more kind of shy way of doing useful God is somehow we want to appease God that some, some equilibrium happens in our spiritual walk that nothing bad happens to us. Or our kids go get into good schools. Or we get promotion. We pray hard about it. And no cancer in the family. Brothers and sisters, this is a wake-up call. And you, you know some, some of you, this is a review in many sense. But it is the reality of our culture. We're up against it. The current is strong. In order for us to be Christians who have saltiness, the light of the world, we need to swim up against it. What does it look like then? Believe what sovereign God.
to think rightly, first of all, it begins with God. God calls me to his sovereign plan. He has a good plan. He has a sovereign plan. The beginning, from the beginning of the end, end of the time, God has sovereign plan. And he calls me to join in with him. Rather than God is part of my life, I am part of God's life. You cannot compartmentalize God any longer. 360 degree, your career, your family, your love life, your hobbies, your money, your in-laws, whole thing is in God's life. Prayer is what do you desire to see in me or through me? This is the idea of openness to change. God, transform me. I want to be shaped by you. And by the way, our, our church have tradition of going to a park or a library for extended period of time for Solitude and Silence Day. This is a single question that we're asking for three hours. Lord, what do you desire to see in me? Because unless we ask that, question, we're going to capitulate into the worldly influences, including church people like pastors. There are, within the church, there are definitions of what success looks like. If I don't ask God's voice to speak to my heart about, to think rightly about God, it becomes God, you know, you, after all, you want church to grow. It's, it's, it could be about 85 or even 95% for God, but there is a subtle motive in there. And that's when church becomes turning away from spirit dependence, depending on the Holy Spirit, and begin to rely on our own resources and wisdom and our management skills. So let's ask this question. What can we learn from what is the visible example? And how can we learn practically? Learn to think rightly about God. So example first. I chose Job, none other than Job. And many of you know uh, at least some things about Job. Job was a wealthy man. Job was, had a lot of children. He was admired. He was a righteous man. And Satan didn't like it. He basically said to, to God, you know why he praises you? Because you give him good, you give him good things. You take away, I guarantee he's going to stop Praising you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to go a little further and say, he's going to curse you. And God said, allowed, per permitted Satan to test him. Initially, around him, all the children died, but do not touch his body. 
And then he finally got the permission to touch his body, and he had this all this skin thing happening that just itches. I know that I had an allergy before, and I had to wait 35 or 45 minutes in ER. They're, they're cruel people. Just I'm dying, and I'm doing push-ups because the allergy is like bumping up like this. And I can hardly imagine Job scraping his skin with brick. And his wife, why don't you curse and die? Curse God and die. He never sinned. As you know, the whole thing, chapter 1 to all the way to 41, is about Job's struggle. It's hanging in there. But there is a subtle sin to think rightly, to think wrongly about God. His sin, his one and only sin, that he had demandingness, demanding spirit to God. He's basically, where is God? If I could just see him, I'm going to ask him, put him in a court in a way, that he's going to answer me, that he's going to declare I am righteous. Unlike my, uh, my friends who are judging me. That was his idea. In chapter 42, actually chapter 40, God finally shows up. The, chain, the scene changes drastically. And because of right view, there are three shifts going on, movements going on. The impact of right, having a right view. Number one is a from man-centered perspective to a God-centered perspective. Chapter 40, verse 33 to 5. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. I'm so small. I'm miserably small now. I understand. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I put my on my mouth and just keep my mouth shut because I don't have any right now I see. I have spoken once. I will not answer. Twice I've spoken, but I will proceed no further. You see that? What happens is it causes, when we have a right view, it causes us to move to see how small and limited my own perspective is. Before the right view, we are the center of the universe. We know everything. You know the junior hires, middle school kids? They know everything. But they say they know everything. That's how dumb they are, right? <laughs> you know who, who sophisticated dummies are? Adults who know who think they know everything. Sometimes we should say we think we know everything. We know what to do, but doesn't reveal it. Appear to be, oh, I'm open for feedback. <laughs> and then your wife says something. How stupid that is. Just listen to me. When we see our view so limited, as a limited and small, 
And that's the beginning point of we turn our attention to God. What does God really think? And the impact begins when we see from God's point of view. Have you met people who are impacted by the vision of God that is huge? Starting with uh, biblical character. Isaiah, when he saw this vision opening up and seraphim and cherubim flying around saying, holy, holy, holy. What does he do? What is the response? I am not worthy. I am doomed. That was his confession. Even Simon Peter, when Jesus approached him, he finally saw the Messiah in front of him. Depart from me. I'm a sinner. That's the right view. And I fear for our church. I fear for churches in America because we sound so sophisticated, so grandeur in our understanding. And even doing holistic missions that as if we figured everything out. That's the danger. Number two movement of an example is from prideful self-absorption to humble surrender. Now verse chapter 42, verse 1 through 3. Between that verse and this verse, what happened? Basically, he said, I cannot speak. I'm going to keep my mouth shut. And God says, brace up, stand up like man. You shall answer me. So God gives him a bunch of questions. Where were you when I was creating mountains and oceans? You, you get the idea? You're asking, you don't know what you're asking. The uh, scale of grandeur of God in, he, in his own power and knowledge, Job finally understood, and he, this is his confession. Verse 1, And then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this, God says, that hides counsel without knowledge? And therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I am not saying you don't have any will anymore. But when we begin to, by the help of the Holy Spirit, opening the, the eyes of our heart, spiritual eyes, when we have a glimpse of right view of God, holy God, sovereign God, transcendent God, God is consistently, absolutely right in all things, in, what, in his wisdom. But also God is consistently, absolutely good 
beyond our imagination. When we see the glimpse of God, our little problem that we used to be angry about, and all of a sudden, our self-absorption becomes surrender. Do you have pain in your life? Does it anger you? I do not deny that. I think, you know, Christina, Grace, uh, Rika, all our mental health professionals will encourage you to embrace, to feel that, right? But don't stay there. Listen to what God says in Hosea through the mouth of Hosea. My people, do not cry out to me while they are wailing on their bed. Two different pictures. Wailing on the bed, you know your pain. You are deep in your remorse and pain and whatever the suffering that you're going, depression. But you could do that without crying out to God. You become self-absorbed. Crying out to God is you could do actually the same thing. You could even give all the things that you are thinking, hard to even admit to yourself, to God and angry at God. You could tell that. Tell God. God is a big God. He could handle it. Read through Psalms. But as you're doing that, have you seen the Psalms? read Psalms, at the end, there is a surrender, humble surrender to God. Because when you do that, there is a peace, God's shalom. Third movement, from a demanding spirit to a repentant spirit. And this is a climax of his confession. Job says, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you, and therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My translation, therefore I see my own ugly brokenness in my heart. Now I am remorsed and repent of my self-centeredness of my limit, limited view of you, my demanding spirit of you. Have mercy on me, O oh God. Don't get me wrong. I think the, just because we have a you know, right vision of God and all of a sudden you could see everything, and you could, your spiritual problems will be solved at all. It is in journey, and we get to know God as much as uh, we're getting to know God. He allows us, and He gives us grace, and His mercies are new to us. I'm hoping that Spirit has been working, tugging in your heart. Oh, yeah. There is some conviction. I want to think rightly about God. I want to experience those three movements that Job experienced without experiencing pain and suffering. That is wisdom, right? 
So here are three practical suggestions. Number one, think rightly about God by submitting yourself unreservedly to Scripture as the supreme authority in your view about God. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through 17. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, or for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Don't read it just for the pastors, the preachers' passage. When you, when you read it, you could see that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profit, profitable for spirits teaching me, for spirits reproving me, for spirits correcting me, for spirits training me in righteousness. Day to day. Let's look to the scripture. And I, I said this few times, and John Stott is so right. What we requires us is the a priori surrender, submission to Scripture's authority. A priori simply means predetermined. Even before you know it, you open, crack the Bible, you never read that part, but there is a submission to it. One of the reasons why we go to the Bible, rather than too much of topical, you know, summertime, this is a kind of unusual topical series that we're doing. Because in, in our Bible, 1 Corinthians, the first question always answer for us, why study 1 Corinthians? What's benefit for us? Of course, I could say a lot of things. The first answer always, because it is there. A priori, submission to Scripture, is that God put it there for our benefit. We're going to study it. Don't treat Bible like your refrigerator. You'll crack it open and take ice cream and whatever you like and close it. And then you think that your business is done. Our quiet time list is similar that way also. To going through Jeremiah, it was painful. But we go through it because God's wisdom is greater than ours. And then we begin to think rightly. I thought our God had this the angry image of God who is just vicious to get us all because of my upbringing. But as I'm getting to know, this is incredible how God lavishes us with his grace. I thought God should be all the loving God and graceful God. And we walk, walk through the exodus and meticulous instructions of how to approach God. You cannot deny. You cannot avoid the fact that God is holy. God is absolutely holy. He requires us to treat him 
as holy. The thing, little things in my, in my life that we want to shrug it off actually speaks volume to God in how we approach to get rid of what, please, what displeases him rather than rationalizing. I'm sorry about that. So let me just summarize and practically it means what does it mean to submitting ourselves to scripture to think rightly about God is practically it means a continual renewal of our minds from a man-centered view to a scripture-centered view of God. Because scripture-centered view of God means God-centered view of God. Here's my confession. At Crossway, we are trying to be intentional about scripture guidance. Did I believe doctrinally the statement of belief, something very different about 15 years ago, even 10 years ago? No. Just about the same. But day to day, what do I really value as a scripture center? In terms of church to grow, do I pay more attention to management books and leadership literature, which I used to? When I preach, do I really believe that God's word has a power to change? I don't, I don't need to help the scripture to become more relevant. And in your own ways, you think about, do I really believe God has wisdom that I really need in my parenting, in my marriage, in my church life? What does God desire to see in me and through me? Number two, think rightly about God by being vigilant against distorted views of God from the external and internal influences. Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and what is a, what what is good and acceptable and perfect. Eugene Peterson's message translation captures this notch a little more intense for modern readers like you and me. So let me read the same thing in message translation. Don't be so, don't become so well adjusted to your culture that you fit into to it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attentions on God. You will be changed from the inside out. Readily recognize what He wants from you and quickly respond to it. Unless the culture around you, unlike culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you, develops well formed maturity in you. Isn't that great? I think some of us need to stop reading online too much because all the influences are going. 
And if you, our opinions are already formed before you read scripture, it will be such more difficult time. And as you're reading from scripture, we need to develop the filter and ask the Holy Spirit to help us to discern, which is not easy, once again. And we become polarized if we become simplistic. How do we think rightly, but with full of grace and affection for people rather than judgment? And practically, this includes a religious thinking of our day. Be very careful about receiving all the teachings that you, you see out there. Isn't, isn't the evil one smart taking over the major Christian station, TVN? Majority of that is a prosperity preaching, gospel. And I would say, we need not stop. Uh, we need even, to, there is no need for us to look other churches. Lest we become judgmental, how holier than thou, we need to look to our church. And brothers and sisters, I will be so happy and glad that you will continually look into the scripture whether what I am preaching is incongruent, inconsistent with what Scripture really says. Number three and final, this is actually my heartful recommendation for our, at least the Crossway people, because the first two we've been doing it emphasizing day and night. And now, third practical way is think rightly about God by staying close to people whose view of God is real and big, both theolog theologically and experientially. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22 simply says, So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart. There is no better way to learn to think rightly about God than staying close to the people whose heart is on fire by the bigness, greatness of God. Who are they? Who do you go to? Our men's group, women's group should be, ought to be that way. But even beyond that, one of the ways that you could partner with Bob and Grace and Wade and Helen, Boy and Cindy, on their mission field, there's a grandeur of what God is doing. You hear their story, and then your smallness of your vision, the pettiness of your spirituality, will be shaken. Of course, there will be a little bit of risk for you, right? What if, what if I need to go on a short term? Oh, I, I can't do the bathroom there. <laughs> I cannot sacrifice our family vacation for that. But when you begin to see that, 
Bob said today, there will be no regret. One of the best things that I did in past seven, eight years is taking my children, my wife, and to go Southeast Asia, deep in southern part of the country where Wade and Helen is. And our kids are still impacted by them. Because that was the reality of God they have witnessed. If you're living in Orange County, you will feel pressured to buy a bigger house and buy bigger, whatever that definition of a better life, affluent, comfortable life ought to be. And you need to make sure that you need to find the best school district. And even if borrowing somebody, your relative's address, to send the kid there. Do we believe that God by itself, by himself, is better than anything? Let me say that one more time. Do we believe God is better than anything we could hope for, we could desire for, we long for on the earth? Thank you. <laughs> I close with this uh, excerpt from A.W. Tozer once again. If you're interested, this is from the knowledge of, knowledge of the Holy. His attributes about God. Tozer writes, Perverted notions about God soon rot the religion in which they appear. The long career of Israel demonstrates this clearly enough, and the history of the church confirms it. So necessary, so necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when, the concept, when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. The heaviest obligation lying upon the Christian church today is to purify and elevate her concept of God until it is once more worthy of him and of her. In all prayers, in all her prayers and labors, this should be this should have first place. We do the greatest service to the next generation of Christians by passing on to them undimmed and undiminished that noble concept of God which we receive from our Hebrew and Christian fathers of generations past. This will prove of greater value to them than anything that art or science can devise. My prayer for our church and brothers and sisters who are visiting our church today is that, that we will begin to pay attention the way we think about God. 
and not only become vigilant against it, against the false view of God, but proactively pursue the right view of God, grandeur vision of God in Scripture and with one another. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Without your word and your scripture, we are really lost in the midst of so many voices and differing opinions. So more than anything, we commit ourselves to the high view of scripture and to the high view of God and help us to understand and to hear to your directions. Keep our hearts humble so we may not be wise in our own eyes. May the people of Crossway and, and the people who are visiting with us today be wise. And to, to look to you and to look to scripture before you bring trials to discipline us, to wake us up. Oh, Lord, we pray for America. That you will have mercy on us. Heal our land first bring renewal and revival into your church O Lord that we humble ourselves and to follow the guidance of the scripture and to think rightly about God We thank you for your scripture. We pray all these things in the name of the Father, of the Son, of the Holy Spirit. Amen.